Over the radio, the SEALs reported Bin Laden was dead. The news of Bin Laden's death brought celebrations to the streets of the United States. But it also haunted the world with memories of a clear September morning a decade before, when the streets of America were choked by terror. That mystique and that legacy goes way, way back to even Vietnam and before, you know. The enemy knew the men in green faces, or if they were coming for you, you weren't coming back. Since World War II, SEALs and their forefathers have faced whatever threat the enemies of each generation have posed. From Hitler's beaches to Bin Laden's terror. While the perils have changed and will continue to, the invisible men behind the face masks still claim a common heritage and future. No matter how sophisticated they or their foes become, they are simply frogmen. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with Andy Stumpf. Uh, Andy is a former Navy SEAL a podcast host, and he does a bunch of other really cool things. Um, it's good to have you on here. How's it going? Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Uh, so what is the name of your podcast uh, for anyone in the audience who might want to check it out? It is called Cleared Hot, which is my absolute favorite radio call. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so you got the podcast, um, and you also do uh, some other things as well. Uh, you're a base jumper, or you used to be you used to base jump? Yeah, well, canopy sports, I would say. Everything from base jumping, base jumping to skydiving to, uh, you know, just about anything that flies, I have an interest in. Okay, and I also read online that um, you were pilot, piloting aircraft as well? Correct. I have just under 35 hours or 3,500 hours of flight time and some type ratings and a couple jets. Okay, and that's def- all that flying and stuff you've done post-military? Correct. Okay, cool. That's pretty cool. Um, so you've done uh, a lot of these things, um, you know, jumping out of planes and stuff like that. These are things you've done when you were in the Navy. They were similar. I mean, obviously, at my old occupation, it started off with static line jumping and then progressed into military freefall and then tandem operations and then eventually into teaching other people to skydive. Any of the wingsuit stuff that I do, that's, I mean, obviously still – a gravity related activity or sport, but there is unfortunately no military application for that stuff. So I got into a lot of the things that I do now post military. Right. Okay. So the, the wingsuit stuff, um, that, that kind of, at least from what I've seen, that kind of popped up in the last like 15 years or so, or, or maybe before that. I mean, they've been at it for longer than that. I think it really just hit the radar maybe the past 15 years or so. And the technology and innovation of what they've actually been doing with the suits has rapidly escalated. So like, the, like for example, like the improvement of the suit is, you know, something that helps you, you know, glide better or further or something like that? Uh, definitely an increased glide ratio, forward speed. Uh, maneuverability, flexibility in the suit. They've messed around a lot with the materials. They've messed a l- around a lot with the 
Ram Air inlets that actually inflate the suit. It's actually three individual wings, one underneath each arm and then one in between your legs. Right. And the more rigid they are, obviously, the better flight characteristics you're going to get. But you want to have, you know, you don't want to have too big of a port because then it'll decrease performance. So they, they're really messing around with just about everything. And then the people who are piloting the suits, you know, with that increase in performance, they're able to do just amazing things. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a couple of videos and it just looks like mind blowing. I mean, guys are like, so basically, essentially, you're jumping off of a a mountain or something really high up. And then you sort of just glide down to the ground. Well, you got to deploy your parachute if you want to do it more than once. Uh, there are some people who have tested that. All of them have tested negative on resetting and being able to jump again. But, yeah, on a base jump, you have about four seconds where your suit is just – it's inflating with air, so you don't have a lot of performance. And then after that four seconds, you're in total control. And, you know, some people go for distance. Some people go for speed. Some people go for proximity to the ground or other objects or a variety of all three of those things. And, yeah, the goal is to fly it to a safe location to open your parachute, pack it back up, and do it again. Yeah, some some of that stuff is really crazy looking. Um, Okay, so now – I would like to talk about um, your time in the, in the military. So can we s- kind of start through the beginning of your career in the Navy and then walk through it a little bit? Yeah, sure. I uh, I came from a, a military family on both my mom and dad's side of the house, even though I'm pretty sure they had no desire or aspirations for me to serve. And I knew I wanted to be a SEAL since I was really young. I'd say about 11 years old is about the first time I remember ever really thinking about it or actively talking about it or trying to research anything about the job. Finished up high school straight to Navy boot camp. The pipeline for SEAL training now is vastly different than when I went through. I actually can't speak very well to the current pipeline, but when I went through, you watched this video. I think it was in the fourth week of boot camp. You raised your hand to take a physical screening test, which was, you know, running pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, a swim, all very low barriers to passing. And if you passed, you got Put into a group of people where you had to pick an A school or an occupational specialty that uh, buds accepted in case you didn't make it through so you could still actually do a job for the Navy. and then i went to that school and then straight to buds started in 1997 graduated late 97 and went to my first seal team from there started off at seal team five obviously pre-9-11 did two deployments there and screen for development group in 2001 started selection there in 2002 left that command late 2006 went back to the west coast as a buds instructor uh, put a commissioning package in was commissioned as an officer in 2008 went from there to seal team three did one more deployment to afghanistan and then was medically retired as the uh, operations officer for the training detachment for all the west coast seal teams So what was the total time that you were in the Navy? I say 17 years. The actual brass tax is 16 years, 11 months, and 28 days. But I figure that's too much to say, so the government can spot me a month. (laughs) Okay. So so you were in before 9-11, and then obviously you remained in after 9-11. Correct. Where were you on that day? Do you remember? I was in San Diego. I was living in the Archstone Apartments, which are right next to the IKEA. Yeah, near the Mission Valley area, if anybody's familiar with San Diego. And randomly, without knowing anything had happened, I had just turned the TV on about 15 seconds before the second plane went into the towers. Wow. Yeah. So, obviously, pre-9-11, I'm sure for you guys, things were a little bit different. 
Um, can we talk about how things were pre-9-11 and then how they changed um, after? Yeah, you know, pre-9-11, it was, I describe it as being largely theoretical. Most of the kinetic activity for the SEAL community had occurred in Vietnam. And after Vietnam, you know, there was Grenada, Panama, Mogadishu, and all of that, all of those things that I mentioned, Desert Storm a little bit, Desert Storm 1, all of those were very limited in the activity and the actual number of people in comparison to the size of the community. So there wasn't a lot of real-world experience. Uh, most of the tactics we were still training on drew their origins from the Vietnam era, so did a lot of the equipment. And that's what we did. We would train for the normal 18-month workup on all the variety of skill sets, whether it's you know outboard motors, navigation and Zodiacs, your jumping, your room clearance, your helicopter operations, uh, patrolling, mountainous operations, cold weather, I mean, just and on and on and on, medical, radios, shooting, all that stuff. And then we would deploy overseas, but overseas at that time period, pre-9-11, for me, my first deployment, I went to the Kadena Air Force Base in Japan. And my second deployment was to Guam. And really, it was just forward staging, and we would train with allies in the event that anything happened in the world, which nothing really did pre-9-11. Post-9-11, I obviously switched from the conventional team to development group, so the operational tempo was quicker, and so was the training cycle. But it went from theoretical to practical extremely fast in the first deployment through the last deployment I did at that command. Uh, it was just basically ping pong balling back and forth between Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, directly involved in the operations going on there. And it just, it was a, a rapid learning cycle. The tactic, tactics shifted, the gear shifted, I would say both in a very positive direction. There was a lot of innovation evolution in both of those uh, arenas. And I think we learned our lessons pretty quick. We could have learned them faster. There were some uh, catastrophes along the way. I think there was some loss of life that probably could have been avoided. But the blade got sharpened pretty quick. And since that time, from my understanding, and even since I've been out since 2013, and it's just a constant evolution and trying to stay one step ahead of the enemy. Right, right on. Um, okay, so then you were you were deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan during that time. Um, Iraq was pretty bad. Um, with the civil war between Sunni and Shia and then kind of America being caught in the middle in some ways. Yeah, there are, you know, there's going to be complications with any type of occupation. There certainly was some strife between the Sunni and Shia. There has been probably since the creation of the Sunni and Shia and the split of the Muslim religion. Uh, But yeah, it was certainly complicated. You know, in my experience, at least, in both Iraq and Afghanistan, it's very tribal, and most of the people are just trying to live their life, and they're worried about you know their daily needs, and they just want to know who's in charge and how that person is going to treat them. I mean, by removing Saddam Hussein and kind of creating that vacuum and us occupying and trying to create and rebuild that government, I think it actually created a, a lot of unsettled people, and then with the insurgents trying to roll into that country and then take over the places where we didn't have a very good foothold. It was just, it was difficult in addition to the Sunni and Shia struggle. Right. Right. And I mean, even, even to this day, it still hasn't quite settled. And I, I feel like in some ways, um, some of the, the settling down of some of the conflict hasn't been in, in the U S's favor. Um, kind of more in, in, into Iran's favor and in, in some ways in, into Russia's favor. But um, so you were you were wounded 
uh, during uh, combat operations. That was in Iraq or in Afghanistan? That was in Iraq, right in between Fallujah and Baghdad. And can you talk about that incident? Yeah, you know, I wish I could say it was something that was uh, ridiculously important or what happened that night was drastically different than it happened on other nights. But the reality is we I'm pretty sure we were going after a kidnapping cell and we had we had fixed them into a position and probably I would say a couple square blocks. So we were in the area trying to truly fix them into a particular building so we could assault a compound and we were we were moving around a little bit in our attempt to do so. We actually walked by the complex that I got shot from and through an alley and everything was darked out and somebody came out at the end of the alley and saw us so we pursued them into their house made some noise in doing so. They weren't the person that we were looking for. So we continued on trying to, uh, to locate the people that we were looking for and eventually were able to do so. And, you know, a couple of the lights were on in the house that were not on when we had walked by, but I had no indication of people moving around. I was actually on a ladder looking in through one of the windows for quite some time before I went over the wall and never saw a curtain move, never saw a shadow. I never saw any indication of somebody peeking their head up and went over a wall I was going to be the security man for the breacher. So he's going to throw a breaching charge up on the main door. And I was approaching a corner and there was a large window that I was going to have to turn my back to. And I didn't want to turn my back to it until I had actually looked in it. And as soon as I rotated my head to do so, started taking fire from my left hand side, hit me, you know, right in the side at hip height, lifted my feet up from underneath me and just laid me flat on the ground. And Pretty good firefight ensued from there. There was actually seven or eight people that were injured, U.S. soldiers that were injured on that target. I was one of the least injured, so they were medevacking people out in Little Birds. I ended up getting put in the back of what the kind of vehicle was I? I don't even remember what kind of vehicle I was in, but I, I got driven to the green zone where other people were getting flown right. and met everybody back in the hospital. And shortly after that, you know, it went green zone to Balad, Balad to Germany, Germany to home. And did that side, uh, sideline you for a while or, or were you able to recover like quickly? How was that process? It took a long time. Uh, my main complaint when I got to the hospital is that my ankle felt like it was exploding. I thought I, and I was and it was hurting in the vehicle as well. I was in a Bradley. That's what they did. They put me in the back of a Bradley. And I felt like I didn't remember hitting my ankle on anything, but it felt like somebody had taken a sledgehammer and just pounded on it. I was I was convinced it was just dust. And it turns out that the round that impacted my hip it either clipped my sciatic nerve, severed my sciatic nerve, or the shockwave interacted with it. Really, nobody really knows. But it short-circuited the nerve all the way down to my ankle. Wow. And I had foot drop and just severe uh, neuropathic pain. I mean, they were cutting my boot off of me, and they were being very ginger with my foot. Then they x-rayed it, and they're like, dude, your ankle's totally fine. And wow. if, if I... If I'd had a million bucks, I would have bet that it somehow it had been shot or it had been smashed or run over or something. It, it hurt much more than the actual gunshot wound at that point. And it took me – had foot drop for about a year. Uh, couldn't really walk really well. It took me probably two and a half years to get fully back up to where I would feel comfortable operating again. Okay. So f having foot drop is just like losing functioning of your foot basically, right? I had no ability to lift my foot up, so I could not dorsiflex my foot. I could always push down because it's my sciatic nerve that wraps over the top of my ankle. So I just couldn't lift my I couldn't lift my toes off the ground. It would just droop. Wow. Wow. And and I'm sure 
aside from the physical wounds, I'm sure mentally it's tough to deal with because you want to be back out there with your team and and um, operating and stuff like that. Yeah, I was I was at the place where I wanted to be operating at the level that I'd always wanted to operate at, and then hit, uh, in an instant was put on the sidelines. And I didn't know I really didn't know for a long time whether or not I was going to be able to work my way out of that. Fortunately, I was able to, but it took me a lot of time and I needed to head back out to the West Coast as a BUDS instructor to continue my rehab. And then by the time I did my last appointment in 2010, I would say I was probably back 90% up and running. I I roll my ankle still to this day. That's the residual nerve damage. So I had to be really, really careful over uneven terrain. And a couple of times overseas, I rolled it to a point where I actually considered calling a medevac. Uh, and that's why at the end of that deployment, I went to a, a largely an administrative billet and was actually just going to separate from the military. But they chose to medically retire me in, instead just because my body couldn't function at that level anymore. Right. Right. So what what were you shot by? Was it an AK or? It was AK from probably 15, 20 feet away. Wow. And and the guy who shot you, was that one of the guys you were looking for or was he was he a part of that group? He definitely was. We had the right house for sure. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I don't know if fascinating is the right word, but you know, I interview different guys from different, um, uh, special operations groups and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, some guys will be in for 20 years and deploy, you know, over 10 times and, and not get shot at all. And, and then some guys will get, uh, badly wounded on their very first deployment. And it, it's almost strange how that happens and how it works. Um, it's no, such a chaotic no, environment like that, you know? Yep. There's no rhyme or reason. It uh, You probably never know how many close calls you have because you don't even recognize that they're happening. And yeah, I know guys who did 20 plus years, even approximating 30 years and never had a scratch on them. And others, like you said, were on their first or second target of their first deployment and have a catastrophic injury that ends their career. Yeah, I, I had a guy on um, uh, by the name of Tyler Gray. He, he was at the Army Special Missions Unit. And um, he was wounded in Iraq, like, pretty early on. Uh, and his, his arm got uh, pretty banged up. And uh, it, it just kind of took him out of the fight. And I, I know, to, you know, if you're working out and, you know, you're, let's say you're trying to power lift or something and you're deadlifting and you're getting your deadlifts up and you hurt your back and, you know, that sets you back and that's like, a you know, a mental kick to the gut. But um, something like that where it just kind of changes your career, I'm sure it's not easy to deal with. No, it's not at all. What's funny about Tyler is that he and I got hurt on the same target. We shared a hospital room in Germany. Really? You know, when you were when you were telling your story in my in the back of my head, I'm like, I wonder if that's the same uh, situation. Yep. There. Yeah. yep. He got hurt internally. I got hurt externally. Right. In, right. Comparison target. Yep. Yeah. I, it's so weird. Like, you know, I, I don't know what made me think that. But for some reason, I thought that in the back of my mind. Um, so. You know, as a Navy SEAL or, or any in any special operations, um, soldiers or sailors, airmen, whatever, uh, mental toughness is a big part of uh, everything that you guys do. Um, so, after you were wounded and you're recovering, in in your mind, how did that play out for you? Like, because you continue to serve within the SEAL team, so correct. I mean, it was a long process. Um, it wasn't easy. I definitely had my ups and downs. Uh, you know, when I got back, it was pretty early on in the war, and I and I know that medicine constantly progresses. But at the time that both Tyler and I got hurt, you know, I don't 
the military medical infrastructure was not what it was then in comparison to what it is now. I kind of got the uh, stereotypical here's 15, 16 bottles of pills and let us know if you need a refill type action. And, uh, you know, that's it's a tough one when you're no supervision. You got a lot of narcotics and you can wash it down with booze. So I played around with that for a little bit before I pulled my head out of my ass. And I actually got my head back on straight through exercise, just slowly rehabbing myself because I wasn't happy with the rehab protocol that the Navy had put me on. But it, but it was a journey of of millimeters, you know, that took me a long time to put together a few feet that became a few miles. And then, full, you know, finally, over years, I was able to get back on active duty. OK, so then now uh, kind of continuing the walk through your career after you get wounded and, and you're in this rehab process, you had then left the development group and you went to a West Coast team. Uh, I actually went to become a, I did leave development group and I went to Bud's to become an instructor, specifically second phase. OK. And about 18 months into that second phase tour, I was commissioned and went to SEAL Team 3 directly after that as an O-1. Okay, so that's something I would like to talk about. You were in and you served as a, a non-commissioned and then you became an officer. Correct. Um, so you're able to kind of see things from both sides of the fence. Um, how did that change your perspective uh, regarding you know being on a team and, and deploying and stuff like that? You know, I don't know if it changed my perspective. It just allowed me the the non-commissioned aspect, those 12 years, really helped me in the five years that I was an officer because I understood how the bureaucracy worked. I had seen, to use a you know a metaphor, I had seen how the sausage is made on a daily level. I understood how the, the wheels integrated. And then, you know, I started off at the bottom of the officer rank, so it's not like they expected a ton out of me when it came to I mean, a leadership perspective, they obviously expect a lot, but I wasn't put into a leadership position because I was outranked by every other officer. But I just I, I had a better understanding of how the military worked, how to communicate with the guys. I had a much better understanding than the job, you know, of the job itself and what was required. So, it, you know, in any time that I was successful and I'll be the first person to tell you, I probably failed more times than I was successful in my military career. But on the officer side of the house, the times that I was successful is directly related to that time I spent as an enlisted SEAL. Right. Okay. And then you had one final deployment with SEAL Team 3? Yep. To Afghanistan, most of the year of 2010. Right. So I know that the SEALs, a lot of the SEAL deployments were to Afghanistan, to Iraq as well. But I know there were a lot to Afghanistan, um, especially on the, the special mission side. Uh, it seemed to have been like divided up between the two special mission units, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Yep. Um, and and di- did you work a lot with other uh, other groups, other teams? Uh, I think I have touch points with just about every. I mean, obviously not every conventional unit because there's so many. But I think I've worked at least peripherally or directly with every component of special operations that the that the U.S. military has to offer. Not a ton, but at least once or twice. Right. I know early in, in the 2000s, there was a point where there were guys from the development group uh, like being augmented over to Iraq to uh, the Army Special Missions uh, Unit. Um, you know, they're doing a lot of like hostage rescue stuff and it yep. became really bad. And, and obviously it's just dangerous in general, but it became really bad and they were losing a couple guys uh, along the way. Yeah, they uh, and they also realized pretty early on that taking one of those units and only having them go to one geographical area 
probably not a great idea. It's better to diversify the knowledge base in case you need to surge to either of those locations. You, it takes you less time to get up to speed. So they started doing those cross-training uh, workups and deployments, which I think was a very good idea. Right. right. And then I know um, there was also uh, kind of, uh, I guess, rotating teams between uh, British Special Forces and, and American uh, Special Ops, uh, you know, like the Tier 1 side of it. Um, did you ever work with the Brits? Only peripherally. You know, if we were going to hit a target, it would be, uh, you know, they would take a section of it. We would take a section of it. Never, never where you're or ne- I never experienced it where, you know, that, you know, the inner the units are truly. It's one of their guys, one of our guys, one of their guys, one of our guys. You try to we at least in my experience, we would separate it uh, geographically. Right, and and then you're familiar with your team, they're familiar with their team and how they work and stuff like that. Yep, and you just have a combined objective. Right, okay. So now you've been out for a couple of years. Um, how has the transition been for you? Uh, better now. I mean, I, again, I'll be the first to tell you that I definitely struggled when I first got out. I All I'd ever wanted to do was be a SEAL since I was very young and remember the day I was driving off base with my DD-214 and my retired ID card and I realized I had put very little thought and effort into the next after military service and kind of bounced around a little bit. It sucks or it sucked for me going from a job where it's very purpose-driven. You're surrounded by very driven individuals and largely, you know, you're given the left and right boundaries and you just need to operate inside of those. And you get out of the military if you're going to, you know, it, obviously if you go to work for another organization, they'll probably provide for you those left and right boundaries. But if you're going to work for yourself, you have to create them for yourself and you need to find your purpose and you have to derive it from something other than the uniform you wear and maybe any insignia that you used to wear on your chest. I think it takes a little bit of time. Probably the more time you spend thinking about it before you get out, the easier it's going to be. But there is certainly a transition. And I'd say it took me probably 18 months to really get my feet underneath me. And since then it's been, you know, slow, daily, consistent process. And a lot of guys will describe it as sort of getting off the speeding train. You know, you're going so fast with training and deploying and training and deploying. And then, you know, like you just little to, you have to kind of find yourself and figure out you know, what you're going to do. So some of the stuff that you do um, now with the base jumping and, and some of the other stuff, I believe you refer to as canvas sports, uh, that's like pretty extreme or on, on the the more extreme end of the spectrum. Do you feel like doing something that has inherent risk to you uh, helped you recover outside of the military? Uh, maybe to a small degree. I just have always from the first time I jumped out of a plane, I loved it. And I wanted to once I got out of the military, pursue it at the level that I wanted to in the disciplines that I wanted to. So, I mean, I I don't think it was, I was necessarily searching for something that was cathartic in nature. It, uh, it was just something that I had really, I had really enjoyed. I mean, the, the safety of base jumping can certainly be argued and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to stay on this rock, spinning rock for as long as I can. So that's why I've largely backed off just to the death of a couple of close friends. And it was what it was more than anything, it was my first uh, endeavor into the sponsorship and endorsement world, which alleviated some of the financial strain. 
But yeah. now that I, again, have figured myself out a little bit more and figured out kind of what I want to do for a living, it's it's safer for me to obviously derive that financial um, benefit somewhere else. Okay, so then you were immediately sponsored and doing this for a living. Not immediately. For a while, what I really focused on was te- taking my love of skydiving, and I got uh, hired as a contractor to teach basic military freefall protocol to the pararescue jumper and CCT pipeline. Okay, and that's the Air Force Special Operations. Yep, they're come. Their guys coming right out of their course. We would basically do a little tune-up for them before they went to their squadrons. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, well, it allowed me to jump even more, which allows you to capture more content. I mean, it's it's kind of a a beast in and of itself to play the endorsement game. Right. Okay. So the 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 entire when you're doing this, you're in the mind of entrepreneurship and and that kind of thing. Now, it wasn't intentionally. It kind of fell into my lap. And my theory is that you should always listen to people that are smarter than you when they give you good advice. For me, that's easy because just about everybody is smarter than me. (laughs) So I take their advice or at least take what they say on board and I think about it and I try to find a way to integrate it. And that's how the base jumping or the endorsement stuff built. That's how the podcast came to be was a recommendation from somebody else. The public speaking is a recommendation from somebody else. Uh, you know, selling T-shirts for the podcast. All, again, all recommendations from people that are far more intelligent and successful than myself. Yeah, there, there are some aspects of uh, good leadership where it it talks to having good people around you, or at least good people you can speak to and deal with, and taking advice and being able to listen. Um, a lot of people, especially coming out of the military, I know guys who were in special operations and, you know, they do like leadership courses at Fortune 500 companies and, and stuff like that. Have you ever done anything like that? I want to take a minute to talk to you about our sponsor for this week's podcast, War Dragons. War Dragons is a real-time strategy video game and you can play it right on your phone with over 150 different dragons to breed Each has different attack styles and abilities. The month of July is the month of our independence. War Dragons is partnering with Stack Up, an organization dedicated to bringing military personnel, military veterans, and civilians together through a shared love of video gaming. War Dragons will match all donations made through the link in-game between July 4th through July 31st, up to a maximum of $10,000. Donors will also get an in-game portrait. If you can't donate but you want to support StackUp's work, Breeding Your Dragons in-game can also help contribute an additional $10,000 donation by War Dragons. Download War Dragons. Visit podcast.wardragons.com slash recon on your phone or tablet for more details on how to participate. That's podcast.wardragons.com slash recon. Yeah, for the last five years, really, I've been interfacing with just about every business sector now at a variety of levels from, you know, the keen, the traditional get up in front of a podium and try to impart some knowledge based on your experience, the keynote speech, to multi-year engagements when it comes to leadership developments, uh, refinement, training, all that stuff. And is that to like companies and stuff like that? Yep, for sure. Definitely companies, brands, however you want to describe it. Right. Well, a lot of the stuff... Uh, lessons learned from the military and and I'm not sure if it's just because it's you're kind of team oriented or it's because you're doing you're kind of walking that line of life and death uh, so often 
but a lot of those lessons, it seems, kind of translates over into other aspects of life. Well, leadership is leadership. I mean, it doesn't matter what you wear or what your business title is. And I think more than anything, the reason that those organizations pay attention to what military guys have to say, if they can impart their message correctly, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the consequences are so dire and they are so often instantaneous. You know, in the business world, you you have a lot of time. You know, you can get away with that 1% mission creep over time, whereas in the military, especially in a combat environment, poor leadership could terminate in the loss of life pretty quickly. Right, right. Um, so I, I, I'm subscribed to your podcast, and you know, like I'll see. Uh, sometimes I get like an alert for a podcast I'm subscribed to. Uh, you recently had a podcast with um, Jocko Willink, who's also a SEAL. Um, did you ever work with him in the Navy? Not directly, but we knew each other. He was, you know, we were both on the West Coast, but I was never working directly for or with him. Okay, and and he was a, a an officer, right? Correct. He was also a prior enlisted. Oh, was he? Okay. I, I mm-hmm. didn't know that. Well, he, he has a pretty fantastic podcast as well. Um, he does. He's killing it. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know what it is, but he kind of has a way of, of speaking. And um, and it's just kind of intriguing. You know, his is another podcast I'm subscribed to. Um, so what w- would you have any advice for... You know, a young kid who's looking to be a Navy SEAL or who just wants to join the the military in general? Yeah, I would say make sure it's your first option. You know, don't in by that what I mean is if you're considering it and you're questioning whether or not it might be the right fit for you, it's probably not the right fit for you. The attrition rate at the at the at the training programs and most of special operations, it speaks for itself. There's a reason why the attrition rate is so high. And the first people to go, and I say this based off my experience as an instructor, watching it from both sides as a student and then back as an instructor, are the ones that have hesitation or doubt. Uh, you know, if, if you're there because, uh, well, you know, whatever, it's just I'm just going to do this because I don't have any other good options. When your chips are down, you're probably going to go ahead and just push them into the middle of the table and fold. And then the ones who are there because they have dedicated – you know, their life up to that point to being successful. They know what it is that they want to do. They know for themselves why they're there. They're almost unbreakable. So be one of those guys as opposed to the one that's, that's waffling. And if you are waffling and you aren't sure, listen to that and perhaps pursue something else. But, but, and, um, I also wanted to ask you about selection. Um, sure. You know, like mentally preparing for it. And, and physically, would you say one is more important than the other? You know, I've heard people say all the time that Bud's is all mental, which is, I guess, partially true. But there certainly is a hell of a physical requirement for it as well. In the modern day, though, with uh, Internet connection and Google, you can find all of the physical requirements that are going to be expected of you as a student there. So physical training is absolutely a part of that. Make sure that those requirements are easily achievable. It shouldn't take a heroic effort on your part to be able to pass those things if you want to be successful. And then on the mental side, it's a grind. That's uh, I think people say it's all mental because I would say, and I would agree with, that the daily grind from a mental perspective is definitely harder. If I told people that you know they needed to go out and buy a piece of sandpaper and then put their hand on a table, and for one day what I want you to do is just scrub the top of your knuckles one time, it might be uncomfortable, but most people would do it. 
But the reality of buds is, is that I'm asking you to do that for 180 days straight. And at some point in time, your fresh skin is going to be gone and it's going to be a raw wound and it's going to hurt and it's going to bleed and you're not going to want to do it. And most people, they want to quit. So that happens between the ears. The, the muscle group that fails when people quit, has, it's not below the neck. It's above the neck. So you got to train that too. And I think the best way to do that is just to seek out adversity. Don't, don't seek out things that are easy. Seek out things that are difficult. And when you get to a place where you're constantly being challenged, if you're used to that environment, your odds of success will be much greater. Right. And it's, it's interesting because one of the things that I spoke to Tyler about when he was on the podcast was kind of how society or, or as a whole from, you know, whatever country doesn't matter. Well, well, some countries, maybe not so much, but we've kind of gotten softer. Um, and, and just in the very basics, um, you know, people before had to hunt or gather their food that they ate, you know, every day. And, and now you can just go to a supermarket or you can have it delivered and you can order it right on your phone. Um, a lot of the wars that are being fought or all of the wars the America has fought are far away from American shores. So you don't see the enemy at the door, so to speak. Um, and, and I feel like some of that has kind of softened us uh, over the years. Yeah. You know, uh, I was actually talking to Jocko about this over the weekend and we might have even discussed it on the podcast, but, or I've heard him talking about it recently, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan had no direct impact on American citizens here in the United States. There was no rationing of gas. There was no rationing of material. Uh, there was no concerted war effort. Whereas you look back at World War One and World War Two, just about everybody in the United States was impacted and affected. And I think that just, it, it, it changes your society. It changes the way you think about things. It changes your appreciation. It changes your optic. And right now, the, you know, 0.05% of, or I'm sorry, 0.5% of the American population is going to serve in uniform. And they're the only ones who are really, in addition to their families, of course, are feeling the direct impact and brunt. Right. And then kind of even, even further into that, um, the amount of responsibility that's taken on by the special operations community is even greater. And that's an even smaller percentage of the amount of people in the military. It seems to be that way. I, I mean, I think the days of lining up tanks against a coordinated enemy are probably over, it would seem to be. And so therefore, it's going to you're going to need a more nimble force. And when it look, you, know, you look at the military, you know, the special operations components of each branch are always going to be more nimble than the large, you know, traditionally structured forces of each of those respective branches. Yeah, I think in the very beginning of the Afghanistan com uh, campaign, um, when the Army's uh, special missions guys were out there, um, they, they quickly kind of beat uh, al-Qaeda into submission uh, through small teams, uh, you know, calling in airstrikes and that kind of thing. And uh, the Russians were just were there for about 10 years, almost 10 years, and um, using conventional methods, and they were kind of getting uh, bloodied up. Um, so, yeah, it, it really is the threat that's, being faced uh, in this day and age that kind of changes the, the style of, um, you know, defense, I guess you can say. Yeah, you got to react to what you're being presented with, not what you want to see. Right, right. Um, and, and then you have um, just recently, 
I, I think it was a, 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 con, a Russian contractor who, who works with the Russian intelligence services. They were just hacked and a, a bunch of... Um, a bunch of their information and, and, and files and stuff were sent to, like, major news organizations around the world. So I guess that's, like, a new, part of the new form of warfare is that kind of information warfare and stuff like that. Yeah, the cybersecurity threats. I mean, if I look at my own life, and I'm sure most people who will be able to listen to this, which is going to be on a device of some kind, I mean, there's a lot of information tied to those devices, and it's valuable, and it can be weaponized. <clears throat> Right. Like even like on my computer, um, it's, it's kind of thunderstorming over here. On my computer, uh, on the camera on the front, I actually tape it because I, I, I watched this video with um, Mark Zuckerberg. And I, I don't remember. I think he had the camera facing him and, and his computer. And it was his cameras were covered. And, and whoever was there with him asked him why he does that. And he's basically just saying, you know, people can, can see what you're doing. Yeah, they can um, access the camera remotely. Right. And I mean, I'm not anybody special or important. I don't know that people are, are look, searching me out. But, um, you know, when I saw that, I'm like, if, if he's doing that, then uh, it's definitely worth um, kind of following suit. Yeah, I think he knows a touch more about uh, computers than I do. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. So um, if anyone listening to the podcast wants to check you out and follow up with you, uh, online or anything, where can they go to do that? Uh, you know, I'm on all the social channels that pretty much everybody else is on. So for Instagram, it's just my name, Andy Stumpf, and then the number 212 because somebody else had Andy Stumpf. So I threw my Bud's class number up there. Facebook is just me. You'll know it's the right Facebook page because I'm jumping my American flag wingsuits. Twitter is the same thing, same version of my name. I think it's Andy Stumpf77, same issue. Somebody had my name. Uh, and the cleared hot podcast, obviously, uh, you can just go to cleared if you want to check it out. And that's about it, man. How long were you, have you been podcasting? I think about coming up on just over two years. Okay. And you said someone just suggested it to you? Yeah. I was sitting there talking with Joe Rogan and he said, Hey man, you need to start a podcast. And considering how successful he is and how he knows about what he's talking about, I took his advice. Right. So the so I saw a few clips of you with Rogan, um, but for some reason I thought that was kind of recent. Did, were you on there multiple times or just once? Uh, the clips you saw are probably from the most recent time. I've been on there three times in the uh, past few years. Okay, I see. I see. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. If Joe Rogan tells you to make a podcast, he's, it's probably a good idea to do it. I mean, seriously, right? The guy's got the most successful podcast on earth. If he's giving you that advice, just shut up and listen. Yeah, it really is a phenomenal podcast, and I, I think, um, uh, you know, regardless of what you're kind of into, just the kind of uh, the the variety of the guests that he has on and, and what he brings to it is really makes it fascinating. Yeah, I agree. I love the diversity because you can, I mean, you'll get Neil deGrasse Tyson one day, and then the lead singer from Metallica the next. I mean, come on. Yeah, and um, uh, what, what was a really good episode, or, or not that it was any better than any of the other ones but it was just interesting um when he had uh, elon musk on there and, and you know yes. passing joints back and forth and stuff like that that was pretty good it got a little wild for elon yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think, I, I think he got in trouble with the air force or something like that uh, after that episode i don't think he cares well i, I wouldn't either I yeah. Don't blame him. yeah 
Hey, like, hold on a second. Let me check to make sure that my name is Elon Musk. Yep, I'm good. You go fuck yourself. <laughs> so, um, you also are you also into jujitsu? I think I saw that on the on the Rogan podcast. I am one year and maybe two weeks into jujitsu, and uh, that was just basically again a buddy of mine who, in full disclosure. I just got so irritated with him talking about it. I told him if he would shut up, I would go try a class, and then I really enjoyed it. Okay, and and you're doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Yeah, I train at a gym. Uh, I live in a, the Flathead Valley here in northwestern Montana, and there's a phenomenal organization called SBG, which stands for Straight Blast Gym. And yeah, I went in there for that first class and just absolutely loved it. And there's three of those gyms here in the valley that I live in that I can train at. So I hop back and forth based on the class schedule and I get as much in as I can uh, every day that I'm home. And do you use that as like your main workout or do you lift weights as well? I'm trying to find the balance right now. I think starting off, just like anything new, you exert far too much energy. So early on, I would go to the classes and I was just wrecked afterwards. And the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, touch a barbell or do anything of an exerting manner. But uh, I think personally for me, I still need to be around uh, some weight a little bit just to I want to maintain my strength. And if, you know, if you're doing more body weight or cardio based activities, you're going to lose a little bit of that strength. So I'm trying to find a balance where I'm not overdoing it, but I'm still making gains. Yeah, I know a guy. He's in Montana and I'm forgetting exactly where um, it's been a while since I last spoke to him. But. He was a Green Beret for, I think, 20 years. And um, he was a combatives instructor at, um, I'm forgetting the, the name of the course. Uh, it's it's what the SIF goes through, the Commanders and Extremist Force. Uh, they may have changed the name by now, but um, that's like the kind of counterterrorism action arm of the Green Berets. And um, so he was an instructor there for a while. So I guess he was big on combatives for most of his life. And... Um, he actually got into a uh, hand-to-hand fight in Iraq on, on a target, and he ended up uh, killing the guy in a fist fight. Um, and he's he's somewhere out in Montana. I forget where, but he does uh, mixed martial arts, jiu-jitsu, uh, I think Muay Thai and stuff like that. Uh, but I'm, I just can't think of where exactly he's at, but I know he's out in Montana. Yeah, it's, it's a good skill. And again, it's uh, back to that idea of seeking adversity versus things that are easy. Because I tell you what, when you first start jujitsu, you're going to suck. Right. And I can imagine it's it's frustrating going up against guys who know what they're doing and they're, you know, they're kind of tapping you on and stuff like that. It's not frustrating to me at all. I actually love it. I think it's a testament to how well that the, the I don't want to call it a system or I don't know what would it technically be called, but I think it legitimizes how well it actually works because it, you know, I'm weighing 205 to 210, and if I can get just completely incapacitated and controlled from a physical perspective by a 160-pound woman, then there's some legitimacy to that. Right, right, absolutely. Um, so I, I know also Jocko is big in, in jiu-jitsu, and he's kind of been around the, the uh, MMA scene for a number of years as well. Correct. Yeah, he's been a black belt for 14 years. We were talking about that this weekend. Uh, do you did you record the podcast this weekend? Yes. Okay, and and you you guys were at like some kind of event, right? I was just like kind of tracking on social media. Yeah, we were doing the total archery challenge, which is uh you know basically it's a prep for hunting season. Okay, and and that was up in Montana. Correct. Yeah, Bozeman, Montana. Okay, awesome. 
Oh, so that's pretty cool. So what are you guys just shooting bow and arrows and stuff like that? Bow and arrows, but it's a 25 target course with probably walking about somewhere between six to eight miles, all sorts of elevation, all sorts of different looks at different shots where you have a clear shooting lane, uh, an obscured shooting lane. So you get, it's very realistic when it comes to simulating the environment you'll be in, in the hunting seasons, most of which are going to start in late August, early September. Okay. Okay. And is that something you've done out there in Montana, like hunting and stuff like that? I'll be in my third season of bow hunting this year. Okay. So do you, like when you go out, are you, you just have a bow with you and, and you kind of know where to go and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, you need to, you need to game plan that you can almost treat it like a military operation, you know, where you want to go, what equipment you want to take with you, what animal you're hunting. Obviously you're limited by the tags that you have. You have to have a license and a tags for the actual animals to hunt them. And, uh, like my first hunt this year will be in Alberta because I'm not a Canadian citizen. I have to have a guide with me. So they take care of a lot of the kind of geographically locating the animals. And then they, you know, you work together to either call the animal or spot and stalk the animal, however you guys are going to work it out. Uh, that's, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I, Canada is a pretty cool place. Um, they 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 do a lot where they spend a lot of money and and put a lot of effort into maintaining like the natural, uh, you know, the the forests and stuff like that. National parks. Yeah, Canada is beautiful. I highly recommend people go check it out if they have not had the opportunity to do so. Yeah, I, I was thinking about taking a trip there in the winter. I'm not sure yet. Um, I'm also a photographer, so. I like to uh, to shoot like landscapes and stuff like that. And um, from what I've seen, it looks like some of the most beautiful uh, real estate in the world. Yeah, you'll have some really good landscape photography opportunities for sure. Yeah, awesome. So it was, it was great talking to you. Um, yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. Yeah, it was cool to talk to you. Um, you know, I appreciate you coming on, and I want to just uh, thank you for your service as well. Oh, very welcome. It's my pleasure.